You are listening to Wait a Minute with Beth and Jessica. Episode 6. So over the last few weeks, we have shared with you about metabolic health and intuitive eating. So it's perfectly fitting to now talk about regardless of what your goals are related to your health or your body, that the landscape of food choices and types is not really in your favor in a way that is health promoting. You do have to work harder to find healthier foods, foods that are not hyper palatable, simple foods that we need most days of the week are harder to acquire and has become boring and oftentimes more expensive. This is a really important foundation because there are bigger conversations about the economics and equities among various communities and races, sustainability, and how that is all interconnected. Today, we are really just scratching the cultural surface, but want to get the conversation started. There are many components involved when we talk about this landscape or environment. So Beth, where should we even start? Okay. One thing that comes up when you watch documentaries about health or environment is about meat and animal protein. There's a lot of questions about what's actually better for you, but the answer is actually pretty complicated. So for example, when we have like feedlot, most of our protein that we get in the grocery store and in restaurants and things like that is coming from those big feedlot type places. So we've got cows and pigs and things like that living. The places you see on the documentaries yeah. are terrifying. <laughs> and, you know, I've seen them driving through Texas and I'm sure you've seen them driving through Colorado and things like that. But that's not how cows are supposed to live. And they're fed a grain diet and in order to fatten them up to make the meat taste a particular way and things like that. And we had talked about in the metabolically healthy episode about how that grain that they eat changes their fats and they're producing more arachidonic acid, which is not, you know, not very healthy for us. And then, you know, it's just the quality of the protein is lower, but they do that because you know, the demand for meat is really high and that is a way to get their costs down. They don't have to purchase like big swaths of land. They don't have to, you know, spend all this labor on grazing the cows and, you know, just doing all these things. And so then that they're able in that way to get the cost down, but that's coming at a cost for us. And then same things with chickens are in those really poor conditions as well. Even when it says cage free, oftentimes that just means they are thankfully are not living in those tiny little cages anymore, but they're still all crammed up into this, like, you know, basically a giant warehouse with these lights in there. So they know when it's supposed to be daylight and darkness, because that's how they know when to lay their eggs. So the things that are beneficial to our health are also costly. Yes. Which means those industries that are in business to make a profit are generally not able to also keep those health benefits in mind. Yeah. So in some ways, I think there are some, but for the most part, it definitely costs way more to produce quality protein. But we are seeing a shift. We are seeing a shift. And so right now, as my husband likes to describe these things, is that the people that can't afford it are starting to buy it, which is bringing the demand up, which will eventually bring the cost down. So, you know, like pasture-raised eggs, the ones that are very popular here and actually across the U.S., they've grown so much. Depending on where you are, it's about $5.99 for 12 eggs. 
eggs. 550, I think, is like the lowest that I typically see them. So, you know, you're talking about $5 for 12 eggs versus 99 cents to $1.50 for 12 eggs, which is a huge difference in a lot of families. Absolutely. That's um, one of the things is just being able to kind of get those. And I also see the shift happening in other places. I know Costco, you know, you can buy things in larger quantities and you're starting to get more pasture raised things there and some of those higher quality proteins. And we have checked our Walmart here and they have pasture raised beef and things like that. Our Trader Joe's has it. You know, again, I'm not sure if that's just because of, you know, the general Austin area, even though, you know, we went to the one south, you know, pretty far south, like what the difference is. So it'd be interesting to go to, you know, Walmart that's not so close to Austin to see kind of how that translates across the, the U.S. Right. So it's like not just what is the landscape in all of the United States, but in various communities, it changes. Yeah. And so because we, we really want this to be you know, not only for the health of our bodies, but it's like the health of our planet and raising animals in a sustainable way as well is helpful. Yeah. So I had really wanted to make sure I was really clear about this topic from the get-go following up from our metabolic health thing, because it did bring up uh, the quality of meats. And then I was like, oh, I really needed to preface that with I know that it's very challenging for most people to purchase these types of proteins. Right. And we are lucky in Austin. We have lots of great farmers markets and resources, but definitely, you know, the price is reflecting a smaller amount available. Right. Yeah. So you're paying for not just the way that it's raised, but it's also the smaller availability. Yes. I also purchased them in much smaller quantities. And so, you know, the amount of meat that we eat is a smaller amount because of the cost of it. And so then therefore I let the other things on the plate be the larger amount instead of having the larger amount be the protein. And so that's the other way that some people are able to afford it. And I can't, I haven't checked in to see like how the affordability of butcher box and those types of deliveries. Yeah, but that raises a good point of just our culture of being meat and potato eaters where it's like, <laughs> oh, maybe I don't need an eight ounce steak. I can just have, you know, two to four ounces of protein on my plate. And so that's mm -hmm. a shift um, that is not as culturally discussed. Correct. Especially in Texas, we hear a lot of people get really afraid that, you know, they think we're trying to turn them into <laughs> vegetarians. <laughs> Yes, yes. So, Beth, you introduced a new word to me just today, which is obesogenic. Did I say that right? And what does that mean? Yeah. So that is what many people in my, my world call our current food landscape is that they call it obesogenic, which means that it is promoting obesity just by the food that it is, which is high sugar, high calorie, low nutrients in that the chemicals that we talked about before that disrupt hormones, a lot of fried foods that create inflammation and oxidative stress or oxidize the LDL to make it be that kind that doesn't function properly that we talked about. So really, it's just our food out there that we are exposed to mostly is supporting the rise in obesity. So this brings up a conflicting idea, right? Because yeah. which, which often happens in the <laughs> world that we are in. Okay. Um, so how is working to combat an obesogenic environment different from also being the food police 
or just when it comes to inclusivity of all foods and not labeling foods as good versus bad or even being fat phobic? Like, how do we do both? So that's an awesome question. Um, (laughs) Okay. So what I think about that is when our food landscape is really stacked against us to creating not creating health for most of the population, that is very different than the food police. Like it is much harder to come by getting a balanced meal that's not been heavily processed even at the store. Right. So, you know, just our ingredients and things like that. So, so to me, the food police is that whole very restrictive thinking of you can't have that, you can't have that, you can't have that. And when I think about the obesogenic environment, what I think about is, is like, that is like the food supply that is practically given to us and is makes it very, very, very challenging to even get beyond what we're having available. The availability of high sugar, high flour, highly processed foods is the primary thing that we can all easily gravitate towards because it's fast. It's easy. We're all working very busy. Whereas the food police is a little bit more restrictive in that particular way. And I think I would say that the food police, when I think about that, does not take into account the fact that we know what people are stacked up against. Right. Like they're like, just go find some healthy food and eat that. And it's like you're missing the whole picture of somebody's day in and day out. We've always we've had desserts and, you know, these elaborate foods for, you know, quite some time. It's just the amount it used to be a special thing because it was so expensive to produce sugar and to produce chocolate and to have all of that. They were luxury and you just didn't have them very much. And now you're flooding the area. And so then it's like getting back to what is that reasonable amount, which, you know, we talk about as what's the dose. What is the dose? Yeah. And so this is this, we got to get back to that, but it's so hard, right? Well, I'm just thinking of, you know, that critic's eye. And if anyone's listening, you know, who is well-versed in this, it's like, yeah, are we, you might say, oh, we're becoming fat phobic by trying to combat an obesogenic environment, but that's not true. No, because what it really is, is like you're giving individuals compounds that affect their brain and expecting people to not have a desire for that. Like, please come on. It's like, you know, when the tobacco industry used to say that cigarettes weren't so addicting and so harmful for you. It's the same thing. We're just dealing with it, but it looks rather innocent because it's food and, you know, food is going to have it, but I don't think there's that. And then, you know, we add in the packaging and all the plastic we're exposed to. And now we've got a whole additional set of messaging things in our body that are creating problems and hormone regulation and things. Well, that's a perfect segue into this next bullet point, which is <laughs> I am a sucker for, and I think most people are, which is why it's a huge industry, which is marketing, 
right? Okay. I have a degree yes. in it. So I'm fascinated <laughs> in how it all works. And I can see how it's manipulating people's brains, um, mm. especially when it comes to food. You know, we see these images on TV. We see that colorful packaging that you mentioned. And mm. some of that packaging is offering healthful promises <laughs> that may or may not be true mm-hmm. and so on. And it's not just marketing. It's the food science that goes along with it. It's another class that I loved in college. Did you science. take food science in college? I did. It was, oh, I don't know. I were venturing out. I had yeah. to take it. So, <laughs> And basically any class that was about food, I took. <laughs> so. <laughs> and so our culture is making food more flavorful with science. Tell us more about why that is, you know, misshaping our landscape. They have figured out long ago, I say long ago in the scheme of things, it hasn't been that long, but they have figured out with all of this new food science technology, how to make things hyper palatable. So like some of the best examples are Doritos, like that Cooler Ranch Dorito is designed to have so many different flavor profiles in each bite that your tongue like explodes with flavor and your brain is trying to register it all that it can't. So you just keep wanting more and more and more. So it was engineered for your brain to not tire of the flavor. And so you're just keep going for it. Uh, McDonald's was engineered in a way to have, I mispronounce things all the time, like quesomorphines and glutamorphines and things like that in the food. So you've got like a shiny, happy experience of having that food there. And then particularly as a kid, and then you've got playland and the toys and all that. And so then your brain is like, oh my God, that is fun and delicious and all of those things. And so I really, the way that food is engineered, they are creating a lot of this food so that we do become more dependent on it. We have it more because all that sugar hits the dopamine receptors, hits some serotonin receptors. It really is that. And so your brain is like, oh, that felt good. Let's have that again and again and again and again. And it's designed like, to keep you buying. Yeah. But like all other, you know, hab- um, addictions in substances, alcohol, drugs, blah, 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 the first time is always the best time. (laughs) And then after that, your brain is always like, well, I'm trying to get back to that original feeling Mm. and we can never really get back there. Like we can have a few of those moments where we're like, Oh wow, that was delicious. Right. But we're still seeking more of that. Which, If you think about it, they know that, which is why they keep giving us new flavors of things. Correct. And we also get tired of things as humans apparently. And so then they think that, you know, we need to create more and more different kinds of stuff. So when I go, I I shop at a smaller grocery store on purpose because it is the volume of choice on a chip aisle alone. Oh my goodness. I'm like, I just, I can't. So (laughs) it's just too much. So anyway, so when you think about that, like aisle after aisle of canned goods and, you know, 17 different types of ranch dressings and stuff like that, like that's just mind boggling, right? So it's just all coming down to who can make it be the most palatable and the marketing is there. And then you had mentioned in your, that statement, 
slash question about like the packaging also saying healthful promises. I so mm-hmm. remember like we had to memorize all those claims, health claims, and there are different ones. And so some of them are a hundred percent regulated and some of them are not, they're allowed to just say all natural or, you know, da, 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 da. And if it's like a third less sugar, yeah, it's like a third less than whatever was their other one. It's (laughs) like, so if you had say, I don't think that there's a third less sugar Oreos, but as an example, if you had Oreos and say it had 15 grams of sugar per serving, then all you had to do was try to get another Oreo that had a third less sugar content, and then they could put that on there. I mean, so that's that would all be great. <laughs> but yeah, so, it's like, so some of it is like, you know, you do have to be truthful. Some of it is, you know, playful marketing. It's just marketing. And then a few things like what used to be like on soy products about heart health or something like that had mm. to meet, it did have to say a certain thing and it did have to have a certain amount. But a lot of our, the stuff that we see in packaging is just whatever they felt like making up. There's a few things that are regulated, but not a lot. So it's, it's, it's intense. I'm just waiting because I, you know, since the pandemic, I do a lot of online shopping and like, luckily they haven't figured out how to advertise within my shopping cart type of stuff yet. Like they know what I've bought before. And so there's that, but like, I'm not yet getting any like things pushed in front of me the way that you do when you go in person and there's end caps. And like you said, the endless Uh aisle of chips and things like that. And so I'm sure it's coming, but right now I feel like online shopping is a good place to be. Yeah. Oh, and then like kind of back to like why, how people get stuck in this, right? I just finished listening to Trevor Noah's book. Yes, I'm late to the cultural game, but I just finished listening to his book and he had this section in there where, you know, he used to, he had this gig in high school where he made his own pocket money. And so instead of relying on the little bit that his mom gave him, so he was able to afford to buy McDonald's instead of eating her very traditional South African foods that she made. And so he would just like go to McDonald's and he just remembers like being able to like get that and how exciting it was. And then he's like, and then you're, you get halfway through it and you realize, Oh, this doesn't really taste that good, but you know, you eat it anyway. And then you just do that over again. Like you crave it, you want it, you know, they make it seem like all that. And I think part of, they were kind of like all into like Western culture of things and McDonald's was like, what? Um, so, but he, he described it perfectly in that, like, it's so amazing. You just think it's the best thing you've ever had and and then you get halfway through it and you're like, "Eh, this actually isn't so good, but your brain forgets that. And then just wants that again. Right. Those first few flavors. So Mm. he described it really well. And I did a mediocre job of recounting that. (laughs) (laughs) So on the flip side are what we are referring to as simple foods, which is just basic real food that Mm -hmm. has little processing. Mm -hmm. But it's like it can be hard to find food in certain areas, especially places like food deserts. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. What have you recently learned about food deserts and being able to find simple foods? 
You know, food deserts is not new. It's been around for quite some time. So for those of you that don't know, a food desert is an area that does not have its own grocery store nearby. It typically will have lots of fast food locations, not so many other regular restaurants like sit down restaurants. And then most people are getting like their quote unquote groceries from like a corner store because there is no reasonable distance grocery store. So that's kind of like what we would think considered a food desert. And there are, you know, people are bringing awareness to this and trying to bring light on it because it is in low income, poor communities, often in communities of color. So it definitely is a challenge there. That's what is so hard is, is that People just assume, oh, well, they don't have money. They don't want access to healthy food. They want junk food. But that's not really true. Um, so these kids, oft, they do want it because they grow up with it and it's so exciting. But, you know, they really do want access to healthier foods. It just is a far distance away. They, they may not be able to get to on public transportation. And it's much more expensive than this other stuff that is offered to them. Right. I mean, the landscape of profit, right? And, you know, capitalism really is like what makes it challenging to get some of these things to these communities because these are businesses trying to make money and it's just this really kind of vicious cycle. Yeah, because I mean, if you think about it, I saw this on Instagram the other day and it was very true. It was, if I have $5 to feed my family of four, of course I'm going to choose the four frozen meals and not the bag of broccoli. Yeah. So the things that, you know, you're offering people for the price is they need to feed their family, right? So let's talk about the restaurant industry and this is a two-part question. One, mm. do you think eating out is tied to this inequity that we're seeing in certain areas? But also just in general, how does the restaurant industry contribute to the detriment of all of our choices? Yeah. So like I mentioned in food deserts, one of the characteristics of that is, is that there's a very high number of fast food restaurants and a lower number of higher quality restaurants. And then the other component is then as you move out of those areas and into different areas of communities, then we've got restaurants, you know, your standard stuff that has these huge portion sizes of pastas and really rich sauces and just fried food and whatnot. So it does, I think it as depending on the surrounding area, I think that that inequity continues to to shape restaurant choices, things like that. Like I think about rural areas and the types of foods that are there typically are fried foods, larger portion, depending on the region, that sort of thing. And then just in suburbia in general, it's restaurant, 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 convenience. Right. It's like you go convenient. from the city <laughs> to suburbia to a rural landscape and how all the food changes. But what's consistent as you travel all of those is fast food. Right. It just is the number of them will wax and wane. And so that's really interesting because even in a suburban area, there's tons of fast food because it's quick, it's convenient for like all the busy families that need to pull through, drive through on their way home from work to feed their kids because they don't have the energy to cook which is no different than in an urban area that they're working all day as well and they need to feed their family quickly and inexpensively. I have an unapproved question. Oh. <laughs> we may, may or may not need to talk about today, but it's like, 
who's responsible, right? It's like, on one hand, I believe like we are individually always responsible for what we put in our mouths. But as we're discussing, the landscape obviously makes it that much more challenging for so many people. Right. And then like, at what point do we hold, you know, restaurants accountable? But we've seen that some, like in some places, you know, they put the calorie accounts on it, or maybe they stop serving trans fats or you know, they're, they're taking some steps to maybe try to help people make better choices, but like, what's the next, like, what needs to change? Who's going to change it? I really, I know everybody hates this so much, but I really think (laughs) the government has to step in. Yes, they have their food guidelines, but they're heavily influenced by, you know, other outside factors, to some degree, not a hundred percent name names. There are some really good scientists that, you know, do write these, you know, food guidelines. But the thing is, is no one cares, right? Because all they see is what's in their face, but the U S is a capitalistic country. So money wins. And so there's imagine the amount of lobbying dollars that would go into having restrictions against these things. Even if we could do what a lot of other countries do, Europe and South America and these other places, changed the things that are allowed in these foods that are not allowed in other countries that we allow in the United States, we would be able to make health improvements. Even if like, for example, ketchup, in other countries has cane sugar in it, does not have high fructose corn syrup. High fructose corn syrup functions very differently than cane sugar does. McDonald's is allowed to use like this, like hydrogen, some kind of chemical blend in the meat that basically, I don't know what exactly it does to it, but you know, it's that what Jamie Oliver did to try to get kids to be grossed <laughs> out by chicken nuggets and Gabe showed them that pink slime stuff. But they ate it anyway. <laughs> they ate it anyway. But anyways, they don't allow that in other countries. Right. The so, ingredients are yeah, different. So putting that kind of stuff in our food, if we could get that out, it would actually help quite a bit. And then if we could more regulation on what's actually offered to us, I don't know. I just, I part of the thing is, is, At this point, it feels almost like hopeless (laughs) and the only way out in some way is basically is to get enough people voting with their dollars, voting with their dollars. So Bill is right. Your husband is right about (laughs) we need the people who do have the resources to start with their votes by only buying the things. But it's also helping continuing to lift up the other communities mm-hmm. in that like here in town we've got um the sustainable food center that puts on a lot of our farmers markets but one of, so one of the things that they do for food stamps is that your food stamp dollars go double so you have double the purchasing power of those foods at their markets in town which are all over and then the other thing that they do is they have like the healthy cooking classes so they have an individual from the community teach their mm-hmm. you know their peers how to cook in these more healthful ways and they give them all boxes and things like that and so it's just that constant exposure of these foods to others and things like that i think is really helpful but also you know part of it is is like people living in survival mode it's hard right mm-hmm. i was just thinking i was like we really are all in survival mode especially in pandemic times <laughs> But yeah, but if you're day in, day out, like in survival mode, you don't really have time to think about these things until your health has reached a point where you have to address it. And even then, some people 
people don't, right? So we're going to come back to that in a minute. But thanks for attempting to solve our world's problems. Yes. <laughs> One question. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, yeah. that's the, to to the point of this podcast is it is a huge landscape with a lot of players and a lot of problems, and so it's you know there's a lot to be solved. So jumping to something a little bit more light, which is snack <laughs> culture. Yeah. One thing we try to teach our clients is about snack culture and how our environment really pushes snacking as something that we are supposed to do to be healthier to survive. And is this true? I don't think so. I mean, good gravy. <laughs> snack culture is like driving. It's it's only because I'm coming at it from the side of a parent, right? Of a child yes. that would much rather eat snacks over real food. And our mm-hmm. daily battle about that is high. And so when I offer X, Y, and Z, which is typically, you know, a fresh fruit or a vegetable or something along those lines. And she's like, no, I don't want that. I'm like, then you're not hungry. Right. And so, yeah. but you know, if you were to give her like a cliff bar, she's like, hell yeah, I'll take that. Right. I mean, she didn't say hell yeah, but um, that's what she wants. And so the snack culture is really high. And I think if sometimes if we could just give ourselves some more space in between meals of like assessing, am I really hungry or am I just tired? I've been sitting at this desk for six hours and I need some oxygen. (laughs) Right. I mean, I teach that most snacking is emotional eating. And so it's not that it's wrong or that it's bad. It's just, we need to be more mindful about it. And then also a lot of people are snacking, but they're like skipping breakfast or their lunch was a cup of coffee. (laughs) Right. right, You know, And so it's like, we need to go back to learning how to nourish our bodies fully to the best of our abilities, you know, before we're just like obsessed with snacking. Yeah. Like I um, had posted on Instagram, these frozen meals that I had tried a week ago. They were actually really good. They were by Primal Foods and uh, they were all, it was super clean. They were tasty. It wasn't weird. And it seemed like a reasonable amount, but it really ended up being like just over 200 calories, which is just not enough for lunch. And so on the couple of days that I had those, I had to have a snack because there was no way I was going to make it to dinner after only eating 200 calories for lunch, even though my lunch was quote unquote, well balanced with 20 grams of protein and however much fiber was in there from the little chopped up veggies, it still was just like a low amount. So yes, I do snack. But I try to have like most of my food in at like a meal time because we need snacks on top of those are the things that are mostly the most processed and highly palatable. The thing is, is like it's also like if we're constantly putting food in our stomach. We're not getting this thing called the peristaltic wave in between meals. And that wave is super important to make sure to like clear things out, clear out pathogens. Da, 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 da. So it's like this cleaning wave that happens from top to bottom to make sure everything's fine, but that wave doesn't happen unless there's been nothing in your stomach food wise for like at least three to five hours, depending on how fast or slow your system is. And so this is some of the reason why some people end up with like gut stuff is because their body always has food in it and can't do these other functions. 
Right. It's like you don't need to intermittent fast for 23 hours. You oh, could yeah. just <laughs> give yourself a few hours between meals and, and get some really great benefits from that as well. Yeah. So I think snacks have become really exciting. They're in tiny packaging. They pack a lot of sugar and salt and other things in small packages. Mm-hmm. Brightly colored. I know. I mean, snacks are so good. And I think one of the things, and I, I honestly don't know if you just said this, one of the things that we like to do is encourage like if there is something snacky that you love like chips you can include that with your meal mm-hmm. right? right so like you could have a delicious you know well-balanced meal and then include something snacky that you love with it so that you don't have to always look forward to your snacks as being like the only time you can have these highly palatable foods i agree okay so this next environmental factor is one that hits home because I used to call myself a foodie and I've told, I did totally succumb to this idea of foodie life. Um, So please share with the people how foodie life perpetuates a less ish health supportive environment. Yeah, there is a variety of things I think that happens here in foodie culture. Well, one, particularly if you live in a city that has a lot of restaurants you know, that are new and exciting. Um, There's that. So people are going out and eating more than their body can handle often more frequently um, than they would in areas where you know, there weren't as many of those type of restaurant options. The other thing is, you know, food blogs. I don't think they're bad. I've gotten some really great ideas from food blogs. I think that, you know, what they, some of them, what they do is amazing. But what I feel like it does is like that we need to be eating more elaborate things. And like, we need a recipe every night to make dinner. And that really becomes overwhelming for people to create Mm -hmm. such a performance in their kitchen every night that then they're just like, oh, I just don't have the energy to come up with all these new recipes or to cook these recipes even. Um, Because as you know, even as a chef, the first time you read through a recipe, it's always going to take you double the amount of time than it says it does because you're like, oh, wait, what was that next step? Um, So I think people just then are like, oh, screw it. And then we'll get something quick and not as health forward. So, So yeah, so I think shaking it up with a food blog recipe is great, but let's reserve those for the days or nights that we have some slower moments. We aren't feeling the pressure. And then, you know, some of the other foodie cultures can tend to have a lot of like food packaging, plastic and things like that, like food trucks have a lot of styrofoam packaging that, you know, contributes to those obesogenic factors of endocrine disruptors and, and things like that. So to cover that, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I'll kind of go back to your first point and add to that, you know, with the recipes every night, I think that people think, oh, I should love cooking. And if I don't enjoy cooking, then I don't need to be cooking my meals. Right. Um, And so people are like, well, if it's not my hobby, then do I need to be cooking for myself? And it's like, "Mm." (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) you know, when people tell me like, I just don't, I don't like it. I'm like, I don't like doing laundry. I don't like doing a lot of chores, but feeding yourself is kind of this really primal basic way to take care of yourself. And no, it doesn't need to be a recipe that takes you two hours to make. It doesn't need to be a restaurant quality meal, like a five-star restaurant quality meal. It can just be really simple, basic food. And you know, it doesn't have to be steamed chicken and broccoli either. You can enjoy flavors and sauces and spices and herbs and all kinds of things that are going to make it delicious. But there's just like a lot of gray area. You don't have to be a foodie or a chef 
have to cook dinner for yourself. And I don't know, that's kind of like the harsh reality that I share with my clients is sure, we can find resources that make your life easier. You don't have to cook every meal at home. But I think that foodie culture just enhances the idea that you're supposed to be really good at it and love it when you don't. Right. I agree. Okay. So Beth, would you like to share a couple closing thoughts on this landscape and how it affects all of our health? Yeah. So I would have to say something that I have long said that does come up sometime in our conversations um, that people may find extreme is that our modern food supply is the new survival of the fittest. So I just really feel like our ability to try to overcome some of this marketing and food supply is so challenging that sometimes, you know, it's like, is this what's going to do us in? I don't know. So that's sort of like, that's like a, <laughs> a, a thing I think about sometimes. And it is very extreme. And um, I also know that the short-sightedness of that statement is, is that there are people that aren't even given a chance to find the food because of accessibility in both cost and availability in food deserts across the country. So yes, that is that statement, but... And um, it's not just food deserts. There are a lot of people experiencing food scarcity within our own population. Right. And we are aware of that as well. Yeah. So there is that, right? And so really all I can say is to tell people to keep voting with your purchasing power as much as you can. Sometimes it may take a little bit more effort. Sometimes you may not be able to buy as much as you normally would, but whenever it makes sense, do that. Since we are in a capitalistic world, you know, it's like vote with your fork and just do your best. And then when you can't use it through purchase, same power. Use your voice to demand more for your community and for our population on how to get healthier foods to more people. Just give people a fighting chance to get back to vitality. Yes. Mm. The food environment is stacking against us at a alarming rate. Yeah. So if, you know, some good resources for people, if they want to learn more about some of these things, Marian Nessel has a good book about food politics. She has some good info in there. Fat, sugar, salt is a very good read and talking about how, you know, these things create hyper palatable foods. And then another book about processed food addiction. So treating these, what's long been considered overeating, binge eating, or is that thing, is it, it's really processed food addiction that the addiction to these types of foods is actually no different than any other substance abuse addiction. And so if we looked at it that way, then we might be more sympathetic to why people struggle so much with making these changes in their diet. It's not that easy to just be like, I can't eat a bag, you know, that they won't eat a bag of salad. So, which I, you know, totally agree with because of how it lights up our brain in all these different ways. Yeah, it's unfair to compare a bag of salad to a bag of Doritos. <laughs> there's no Yeah. There's no comparison, right? So yeah. it's like, yes, that landscape is just making that more and more challenging. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing those resources. Now we're going to move on to our weekly segment. So mm-hmm. each week we keep our eyes peeled for things in the media or in real life that come from diet culture or perpetuate it in some way. These are often the subtle ways it seeps in, which is why we're shining a light on them and sharing them with you. I have something. Great. 
<laughs> I, I shared it with you, but this was like a couple weeks ago. So I was making a collage for something work related and I pulled up my collage app and there was like this ad to upgrade the app so that I could basically face tune my face or like, you know, there were like a you could totally change the shape of your face. And like, yes, that is something, you know, there are filters in Instagram and other social media apps, but this collage app, I feel like is an app that children use. And it just seems weird to me as do the filters and all these social media things. I think some of the filters can be fun, but some of them are just blatantly teaching us that our face is not okay. It's not okay. Your face is not okay. You need to reshape it. I don't know. I just, to me, that really... It's maybe not necessarily diet culture, but it's right. It it's right parallel. It's, it's parallel with it, right? Well, because I mean, if that, if your face has to be face tuned, which oftentimes you know it's shaping in a different way, then okay, then it takes the next level. Well, what else can I do to myself mm-hmm. to make these changes, right? Which then seeps into I need to change the way I eat. I need to change my exercise. So yeah, it does. It always starts somewhere, and that is a a good point on especially with young people where it starts. Yeah. I sent it in a text to Beth and I was like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> because, um, I just wasn't expecting it there. I feel like on Instagram or other social media apps, it's like, yeah, this is obvious and I get it. But it just really kind of like popped into an unexpected place where like maybe as a parent, you would not see it there or you wouldn't understand the impact that it might have on your child if they were exploring that. And so I just feel like it's important for us to understand how those types of features are messing with all of our brains. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. I look at those filters and they're fun and I'm like, oh, this is what I would look like if I plumped up my lips and got some Botox. <laughs> I'm not doing it, you know, but it's just like, it's, it's weird how it messes with your mind. Yeah. That's a good one. Well, I sure hope we gave you something new to think about today and helped you take one more step on your path to freeing yourself from diet culture. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram at path underscore nutrition. See you next week. Bye.